Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. Innate construction software transforms the way owners, contractors, and engineers manage projects and programs. With Innate, you get an integrated project controls platform that solves challenges in every phase of the capital project lifecycle. These are field-tested solutions that give stakeholders the information they need to minimize risk, improve operational efficiency, and control project costs. Innate, transforming the way the world builds. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Is your company proactive when it comes to scheduling? Many companies believe project schedules are just the requirements of the contract, but companies looking to gain an advantage strategically manage their project timeline, resources, and budget. Plan Academy helps construction companies improve their project controls through immersive online training courses. At Plan Academy, your team can learn construction, planning and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and can save your company thousands when compared to costly in-person training. Visit planacademy.com forward slash chatter to download course outlines and talk to a training specialist now. Project Chatter is sponsored by JustDo.com. JustDo.com is a cutting-edge next-gen project management portfolio platform which doesn't force you into a project structure or hierarchy. Think of it as the Minecraft of project management systems with integrated task-based chat, Gantt, Kanban, and much more. It's the only 21st century real-time platform available today. In this episode, we talk to our good friend Dave Snowden about the HEXI approach and what it means to the Kinefin framework. Dave is the director of the Kinefin Center, chief scientific, scientific, I can't say it, scientific officer at Cognitive Edge, creator of the Kinefin framework. Dave is the lead author of the EU Field Guide to Managing in Complexity and Crisis. His focus is on naturalizing sense-making as an emerging transdisciplinary field of study. It's, uh, yeah, another, another episode, Val, where we got absolutely schooled again and brains melted, brains imploded. But what an amazing, privileged hour spent with Dave talking about all things around complexity and the many, many rabbit holes we went down. Yeah, Dave is, is he's an interesting character because he, he does have many facets and you usually, not saying that any of our other guests haven't, but he comes with such a depth of knowledge that uh, it's profound. And when you do sit there, you realize, um, well, we, we do, how, how dumb we really are. And <laughs> it's great to, uh, you know, try and Google as we talk. But Dave will bring a sense of understanding and simplicity to complexity. And he, he understands it innately. And he's trying to bring meaning to the world. And I think his crusade is, is, is quite fantastic. And uh, he's got a lot of uh, interesting ways of how you would apply the Kinefin framework, which I thought was interesting as well, because... Everyone has a great idea and a great methodology, but Dave talks about how to implement that, which is which is very refreshing. Yeah, I love it. I love listen out, folks, for how he talks about maximizing groupthink. Mm. <laughs> um, 
and also silent listening was was an interesting point to bring out um but we'll we won't give everything away i think the best thing you can do because you are going to have to well i certainly am going to and i know you said you will well have to mm. go back rewind stop think on almost every single sentence that dave says so let's leave it there folks as we say keep listening keep liking and keep paying it forward Hello, project people. Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's always great to have you with us. And we are joined by Dale again, uh, this time not in London. You're in Derby or Derby. How do you pronounce that? Yeah, Derby. Um, I know it's a difficult one for you Australians, but yeah, Derby. That's the way you pronounce it. <laughs> the slander doesn't stop, does it? I mean, I can't get a break. But uh, look, it's great to have you back, Dale. And uh, we have a guest who's coming back for a second follow-up, I guess. And if you haven't heard already, he was on episode 83, one of our most popular uh, podcast episodes uh, this year and last year. Mr. Dave Snowden, how are you, sir? Pleasure to see you back. Oh, it's, our pleasure is ours, actually. Uh, we love talking to you. I think my brain hurt a little bit after the last time we had a conversation. and I think I wasn't the only one. I actually got messages from some of our listeners, Dave. I haven't shared this with you yet about uh, what you said and how you said it. I think this is the best way I can kind of phrase it and how they had to listen to it a few times <laughs> before it really sunk in. Um, I wanted to ask you about that. Is that something that's you, you're used to people after they go to one of your presentations or one of your talks? Um, it takes a few times for them to settle into what you're discussing. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's changing a bit as well, but I mean, there's a golden rule if you want to really do something new is a third of the audience should be ecstatic, a third should be totally confused, and a third should hate your guts for all time, right? <laughs> um, and, and that's my general criteria for success. I mean, there's, there's too many keynote speakers who just want everybody to say, well, that was wonderful, and they keep it really simple, stupid. Yeah? Mm. So my, my view is I work in new fields, new areas. That means not everybody's going to get it. And sometimes if you're breaking a paradigm, it's, it takes people a couple of rounds before they get it. And then actually, it's actually fairly simple. We sometimes call complexity science the new simplicity. The, mm. the trouble is we've forgotten how to make things simple. So we, we huge, you know, everybody expects these huge complicated structures with lots of linear flows. And actually, it's fairly simple. You, know, you, you manage emergence, you, you basically catalyze attractors, and you create constraints and boundaries, and you see what happens. Yeah, fantastic. And I think as well, it, it I think it might have permanently shifted me, Dave, because now going into conversations, having some more, I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I definitely have some more familiarization around the Kinefin framework and the EA, EU field guide, which I did uh, get myself a copy and your book as well. I It it did help me kind of explain to others, but then again, I don't have, uh, I need more practice, I think is what I want to say. And a few others I know have also uh, adopted some of the styles. We talked to uh, Dr. Dan Patterson, who's building some software out at the moment. Um, and he was talking about taming projects rather than controlling projects. And I said, I would love to get Dan and Dave in a room to have a discussion because he's, he's actually built some, some software applications that are useful. I mean, he's, he, he challenges himself every day, but Dale and I were having that discussion with him. He said, well, you, you, you have some similarities in language and style of understanding of projects that would make it useful. And I think one of the things that you left us with last time, Dave, was around uh, informal networks and, and the value of that. 
Um, are you still doing that now? You said you were flying before we press record. Are you traveling and, and talking to, to small groups of people? Um, yeah, I mean, we're working on strategy with three of the big farmers at the moment as it happens. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we know the ideas are getting traction. I mean, COVID was a trigger mechanism, but I can't imagine five or six years ago doing the sort of level of strategy work we're doing with complex adaptive systems theory. It would have been out of the window. And it, it's a bit, I remember this from the 80s and 90s. So when systems thinking came in, everybody thought it was some sort of wild academic idea. And then three years later, it triggered business process, re-engineering, learning organization. And it was a dominant paradigm. And th th that's what happens. These things, when they switch, they switch. And it's, it's only really when the old way of thinking is running out of steam that people are open to new ideas. So, I mean, one of the key things you learn, this is one of my, I've got three basic frameworks. There's Kinev inflectious curves and the new asteroid stuff. Flexious curves is a different take on market life cycle. And it basically says when something becomes a commodity, that's when you introduce something new. Because commoditization generally indicates the end of a life cycle. You're now competing on price and quality. There's no longer any dispute. Nobody's getting any major strategic advantage from the ideas. So that's when you introduce something new. So agile, for example, is very clearly in that stage at the moment. It's completely commoditized. And so it definitely needs an injection of new ways of thinking, which we're going to talk about in a minute um, mm -hmm. in terms of the way we're doing hexes. So I, th I think you just have to be patient. And the key thing is, this is standard life cycle theory. You, in the early days, you're explaining how you do things. And you're really speaking to cognoscenti, to other enthusiasts in the main, and confusing the rest. And then all of a sudden it flips over and nobody worries about how you do it. They want to know what it will do for them. And that's where we are at the moment. So we're now basically saying, look, here's an output and nobody's fussed about how we get it. They just like the idea that map will tell me what I can do and then I can make these decisions and how you do it is your affair. So nobody's doing that validation anymore. And that's a classic sign something is moving into a, a different stage of growth. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of interesting uh, points and, and probably we'll go into some rabbit holes. But one of the reasons we got you back on the show uh, today, um, Dave, was around some of the additional work that you're doing to maybe it's the how in terms of the the Kinefin framework and in some of your practices i think we talked about the why and the what in our last episode with you and you know just reading a little bit about hexi and we'll go into your definition of what that is um i actually see this as that how piece the facilitation piece which is refreshing i can say dave because a lot of people have a lot of theories about what to do on projects but then when it comes to how um there is a missing piece um do you mind giving us the very your, your dumbed-down version of what HEXI is and how that fits into the Kinefin framework and then how you want to use it going forward? Yeah, it comes from a few principles. One is if you want to scale a complex adaptive system, you don't scale it by imitation or repetition. Yeah, that, that's the big issue with things like SAFE, for example, in Agile. It seeks to create, a, it scales by doing the same thing in the same way to many contexts. And that's, yeah, I mean, I remember when I first saw it, this is wrong a priori because you scale a complex adaptive system by decomposition and recombination. So it's rather like DNA, right? From four basic chemicals, the whole of organic life form emerges. Yeah? 
Um, and that decomposition to the lowest level of coherence is key to the Hexi concept. So that's one element. Um, the other element is I did a lot of work when I was in IBM on using hexagon shaped post-it notes for facilitation. And the differences are amazing. So I spent two years experimenting with different shapes to try and find out what worked best. And having proved hexagons work best, then discovered somebody else had researched it 10 years before and published a book. So I needn't have gone through that, right? Mm. But it's, it's tessellation. So basically when you give people hexagons, they can't put them into boxes. They put them into sort of cluster patterns. So you actually get people cluster do more and they do more novelty. Yeah. So we've always used hexagon shaped post-it notes. That's kind of like being part of our raison d'etre. And then when I was in IBM, we started to look at methods and we created the first hexi pack then. Um, and the idea was instead of saying, here's the formula. So here's the I do this, then I do that, then I do the next thing. So you can see that, again, I use agile examples. Scrum, Scrum does that, Kanban does that, Safe does it in spades, all right? So here's a process. We follow the process in these stages. What we started to do was say, well, actually, where are we at the moment? What are we currently doing? What can we change? What could we add to that? And what we actually found is you had little piles of hexes with methods on the hexes and concepts on the hexes, People would experiment with them and put them together in different conversations and have much, much richer conversations. And so when we did the first big trial on the new Hexi set, which was at Reading in a workshop, and my team stayed up all night cutting things with scissors because we were prototyping, right? I mean, uh, Josh yeah. deserves a huge credit for this. He was told off severely in the morning, but we we're all grateful. And we couldn't tear people away for two and a half hours because they were literally finding new ways to think about designing projects, not by following a linear process, but by putting things together in nonlinear ways. So to give an example of that, so what we've done is we've used a base kit at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we've also made it open source. And this comes to the next element. So part of the problem we've got is that you've got this proprietary approach to methods or rather to frameworks. I've got no real problem with methods. We've got five or six very distinct methods, for example, for the agile community. We brand them as Kinevin. We actually make those open source, but we could keep them proprietary, but it's the frameworks being proprietary, which is a problem because you end up with a single collection and a single view of the world. So what we started to focus on is how do we create a multi-vendor, multi-tool, yeah, multi-method environment in which you can mix and match the best components of different things. And if we're going to do that, it has to be open source because it can't be proprietary. And so we've published the standards for this. So any, anybody can produce hexes to the standard or they can send us the images and we'll produce them for them. Yeah, that, that's fairly safe, straightforward. But to give an illustration, we're, we, we, well, I'll go to where the, the next major release we got is the Agile pack. Yeah. So what we're doing is we've taken Scrum, we've taken Spotify, we're taking Kanban, we're taking DevOps. We're breaking all of those frameworks into their constituent methods and the lowest coherent component of those methods. So for example, in Scrum, a sprint is, sprint is a component. And what that allows me to do is to peel out the sprint and replace it with another method from DSDM, a three month time box. So that actually suddenly I've created a whole new approach by combining things from different sources. 
And so the way we're envisaging that work for the Agile community is very simple. You have these hexagon packs of all the methods and tools which are in all of the frameworks. You pick the ones you're actually using. And you say, that's where we are. And then you start to say, well, we could do this as well, or we could do that differently. So you have these evolutionary conversations about the way you're going. And I was with Anna in Basel a couple of weeks ago, and we were getting ready for a big workshop, high-level strategy, farm, you know, future of farmer R&D and that sort of stuff. And we literally spent half an hour playing with the hexagons of the methods until we said, well, we're going to do it in this sequence. And then we might do this. So we could create that branching structure. So each method is highly coherent. You know, this is an example of a card. Yeah, that's one of ours. Mm -hmm. On the back, it has QR codes. So you can literally scan the QR code and it will take you to the website which describes the method in full. And so, as I say, I can start to put those together in different combinations, yeah, yeah, on the table. So that's the general approach. Our first release is the generic pack and the EU field guide methods and the EU field guide assessment. Mm -hmm. We've then got a foresight pack coming out. We've got the agile pack, which is just going into development. Um, there's about 15 organizations who are going to put their methods into their own packs, which will fit with us. So that's the principle. Yeah, Multi-methods, multi-vendors, start with where you are, identify what you can change, and also allow people to engage in different solutions at different parts of the organization Yeah, in terms of the way it works. That, that's the basic concept. Yeah, that's great. When you describe the shape, just, just the basic shape and understanding that... Um you don't use boxes and I, I love that idea because um and I, I do think someone has it must have been a facilitator showed me something around the the honeycomb effect or something in that in that okay. arrangement it reminds me of the worker bee situation where yep. you you do kind of come together was, was that some part of the intent as well was that yeah that, that's the tessellation i mean it, it is actually a shape in nature which packs the most into a smaller space but it's a non-linear approach. So literally, you just can't put things into boxes. It's really very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, we're like helping that. that. So we're creating plan sheets, yeah, with, with background hexi prints on them. Mm. And we can now produce back those. So for example, one of the big things we've done since we last talked is to take the constraint mapping stuff within the EU field guide and add to that the new publication on constructor theory, which we've taken sideways from quantum mechanics. Yeah. Now that may actually sound scary, but we've now got a really simple process. So you start off by using a typology of constraints, people brainstorm constraints. You then cluster those constraints and map them onto a grid with energy cost of change against time to change. So anything in the top right hand box is called a counterfactual. So you draw a line around that and say they ain't going to change. Mm. Yeah, anything bottom left is highly volatile, highly dangerous. Yeah, And so what the middle does is say that's our zone of operation. That's where we can do things. And then within that, you say which of these constraints is producing predictable outcomes? Well, if it is, it's called a constructor. So it's stabilizing the space. And anywhere else, you run a safe-to-fail experiment. So you end up with this really simple map yeah, instead of saying this is where we'd like to be, how we close the gap, you say, well, this is where we are and we can't go there unless we're prepared to do something different. And we may never be able to go there. So this is the field in which we can actually do some low energy level changes, which are more likely to be resilient and stable. Now that has its own hexi pack as well. So again, that allows people to put that together, assemble it, 
move things around in its own plan boards. So plan mm. boards, hexes, methods, multi-vendor, that's the principle. That's brilliant. And I, I do remember your last episode where you, did, you, you know, you take inspiration from natural systems and, and they are, you know, beautiful, complex, but then simple in nature as well. And I love that idea uh, of bringing people together from whatever level. And a lot of the time, I think consultants in particular in projects, they always talk about the as is to be, but never mm -hmm. the bit in the middle. And our um, Dale and I talk about this freedom within, uh, within a framework. And it exactly points to that, that, that method that you're talking to. It's very exciting for me because, as you said, um, when things become, uh, what did you talk about? The, the commoditization uh, of, of particularly agile, it needs that injection of, of new, new adaptive ways of working. Uh, and particularly now that hopefully we are all working in a room again, I, that physicality of being in a room with someone is, is so much better. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, I do love it's it. It's interesting though, when we, we've been experimenting with hybrid working on this. Mm. So what I can have is groups in different areas working with the hexes, including we are going to get small hexes you can use in your desk. And, and by the way, we're going for flat facilitation, not vertical facilitation, because that works better. And then basically that can be mirrored. We've actually built software around this. That can be mirrored onto brainstorming software so you can combine and recombine between physical and virtual groups. And we mm. ran the first big experiment on that in Cambridge last week. And it took a couple of iterations, but we got it right. And that's actually quite powerful, including using teams who are mixed physical and physical and virtual, yet within a yeah. workshop environment. Yeah, I agree with you. I was going to, that was my next question about the, the, the vertical rise, because I can imagine seeing this on a, on a wall, you know, maybe you break for lunch. Yeah, we, we, we use it on tables. It's actually on, quite on, interesting. On a wall, one or two people dominate the space. If you have a long, thin table, then people can work on both sides of the table and more people can engage and it spreads out more. Mm. And, and you've also got this emergency backup of going to the local DIY store and buying wallpaper, wallpaper pasting tables <laughs> because they're actually the perfect size. All right. So I end up with about yeah. five of those in the back of the car. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, th I think it's, and it's interesting. People aren't worried about them peeling off. It also means we can pre-print paper, you know, two sheet card hexes with very specific things for an individual client. That's like a 24 hour production process now. And people can basically move those around, play with them, brainstorm, put them together. And it, it's, it's, there's a phrase I invented a long time ago, which is called um, messy coherence. Yeah, is it's, it's messy enough to be creative, but it's coherent enough to be purposeful. Yeah, I love that. That's like painting with my, my with my five year old, you know. Um, it, it's a lot of fun as well, and I think that that brings that creative side into the into the mix. And I'm, I was going to ask you one more question before I pass over to Dale, but how do you you just mentioned it a little bit when you said we talk about vertical walls, horizontal? Uh, how do you manage that distribution of power? How do you pre-frame to get everyone involved? Because I, I imagine that's the same. I've been in many team aways and and these types of workshops where you're right. There are a few types of personalities that will dominate the conversation if uh, they can. Yeah, we, we, we've worked on that. So, I mean, for example, one of the things I'm doing, again, with Big Pharma, it's quite interesting when, when something really, in the early days, the people who buy things are intelligence, military, and pharma. Okay? So if, if you want to do something new, you've got to be prepared to work with what my mother used to call evil people, right? Because they do the interesting things, right? Yeah. Um, but as I say, when, you know, if, if we look at that, um, 
forgot where I was going with this. It's late at night. Remind me of the question again. Uh, just in terms of uh, how you preframe for people who oh, right. okay. generally take so charge. Yeah. What we did there, and this is a key principle of complex facilitation, is you want to ma you want to maximize groupthink on the first round. Mm. So we actually don't mix the tables up. We actually go to the executive sponsor and say, we've got five tables here. Allocate people to the tables who, who think the same way. Yeah, And A, that means they have a really happy first experience because they're all in agreement. But they're always doing the same task in parallel. In complexity, you never break the task down and, and give different bits to different people. What you do is everybody does the same thing in parallel. And then we do an exercise called silent listening in which somebody stays at the table and the, the other tables rotate. They listen. Sorry, the person presents what they came up with to total silence. They're then absolutely silent. Well, the group discuss what they did as if they weren't there. Now, if you can't reply or explain, you listen harder. It also tells you what people are actually picking up without the chance for correction. Well, with five groups, that's repeated four times. So we never allow one group to report back first, because then that will determine what everybody else does. So that's, that's one technique. The other thing we do in this group is a method we spent two years developing as part of the new approach to design thinking, which is called a trioptican. Um, this is also an alternative conference approach, by the way, because you've got these two approaches. One is the big keynote event, and everybody complains that, you know, we don't want to hear the keynote. So then they held an unconference where people are self-assembled and then nobody comes because there aren't any keynotes. Right. And yeah, so and also yeah. from a keynote point of view, it's bloody boring because you present Agreed. and, and, and the, 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 the fan girls and boys are, are bloody awful. Right. Um, I can tell you a story about Peter Senge and that sometimes if you want. So, <laughs> Different. So basically, you don't want that. So what we what we did was we created a thing, and I need, we used animal names for this because we first developed it in British Columbia, and we were working with some First Nation people. So we took the some of the animal archetypes from the Haida folk. So you have three eagles who are your three keynotes, and they sit in a circle, and one keynote presents the other two then respond yeah so 20 30 minute keynote two 10 minute responses again the silent method is used and then everybody goes off into small groups of three to discuss what they've heard and th those are called raven groups and they come back and one person is nominated from each of the three they sit in a circle and talk about what they what they've discussed and the eagles just have to sit and listen as well then you repeat twice more, rotating the eagles, rotating the ravens. So at the end of that, everybody has spoken and listened and heard. And then if, for example, I've got seven groups of three ravens, I then create three groups of seven to synthesize all of those discussions. Okay? And that takes anything between half a day and two days. So we're now doing that to define the next generation of pharmaceutical drug development. So we got very heavyweight experts as the eagles, PhD students and junior researchers as the ravens. And we're putting all of that together in the two day process and using the Gemba version of SenseMaker to gather ideas before, during and after. So what we're doing is we're creating a process where which you speak and you listen in a highly structured dance. Right? And that means that no one voice can, you know, we, we won this against the World Cafe approach. 
In a World Cafe approach, one or two people can just dominate the outcome because yeah. they dominate the discussion. And, and that, by the way, illustrates a complexity principle. I mean, the, the sort of, and I've seen this with learning organisations, and Senghi and Schamberger, they say, well, you shouldn't dominate the discussion. Please don't do it. Well, that's never going to work. Yeah. In fact, you know, sometimes you can play dominance games in open space just by not having an opinion, but just trying to say what everybody wants to hear. It's one of the big problems with open space, right? The law of two feet means it rewards people who say what people want to hear rather mm. than maybe what they need to pay attention to. Yeah, so this is an alternative to that, all right? It's an alternative to a conference. And the whole principle is we know that people will seek to dominate a group. So we create a process by which they can't dominate it. And you've also got equal response. It's much more fun as a keynote to have two other keynotes beat you up. Yeah. I got the idea, by the way, in a conference in Washington. So this is a standard academic response, by the way. If you ever present academically, two other heavyweights are appointed as respondents. So I had this once. I got a special award from the Academy of Management for originality or something like that. And, and the, the, the punishment was to have to present my ideas, knowing that Max Brasso and J.C. Spender were sitting there waiting to tear me apart in front of a large <laughs> audience immediately afterwards. All right. So yeah. it's, it's that sort of being challenged by your peers rather than waiting for somebody from the audience trying to do something. And, and I've rambled on about it a lot. But Trioptican is one of our most valuable methods. In fact, we even built a well, we didn't. Colin built a simulation in the open source wiki. And we'll be running that in Australia um, in July. So we're, we're running our retreat format. So we're looking at new forms of citizen engagement and citizen democracy. So that, that's going to have three heavyweights as the eagles and all the participants will be ravens and it will run over two to three days in a rather nice retreat centre um, up in Queenstown in the rainforest. So... Yeah, that, that, that's where we do a lot of the idea generation. That's awesome, Dave. The, the thing that intrigues me most about you when you're talking there is all these ideas and concepts and how you how do you come up with them, the ravens and the eagles and the hexes? And is it does it just come naturally to you? I know yeah, previously I mean, you spoke about, you know, sort of certain intellects being on the spectrum in the last podcast. I think I think you mentioned something around that. Is it, is it something that just comes to you? Is it a lot of applied? It's a mixture. I mean, first of all, I'm partially dyslectic. And one of the features of dyslexia is, it, is it actually tightly correlated with innovation? And yeah, I don't read a sentence at a time. It takes me a lot of effort to read a sentence at a time. I scan a whole page mm. and look for patterns. So mm. if you're dyslectic, you can see connections between things and you can't understand why these other stupid people haven't seen it and want you to explain it in logical structures, all right? So that's one factor. I think the other thing is I've always been a methodologist. You know, for really ever since I left university, I want to create methods which encapsulate knowledge, which get results. So in order to do that, I've got a sound knowledge of theory, but it means I can develop methods on the fly because I know the theory. Right, so silent listening was invented one day in Kazanaskas because I had enough of a CEO who couldn't listen to me. And that really came from two sources. One was watching ritual, ritual forms of argument in Aboriginal communities in Kakadu back in the 70s. And the other was knowing that silence means that you listen harder. I knew that from cognitive science. Mm. 
So I set up the process. So I've got sound theory, I can experiment in practice, and you very rarely get an experiment wrong if the theory's right. And then you refine the method. So trioptican came from that principle. Um, it, you know, this is the eclectic nature. It came from the concept of a panopticon, which is everything is always visible to everybody else. That's generally Bentham the utilitarians. We know that three combinations, and we can do it with three or five, we know that asymmetry matters. So over about two years, we ran 15 of these. Yeah, and we refine the methods and refine the standards, and now we've got we've got a structured method. So that's what we call praxis, and famous phrase from the seventies: "Praxis makes perfect." <laughs> Love it. So you explain to us, you know, what you want to do with methodologies and and that. But what is your why? Oh, because the world is a dangerous place at the moment. There's. Um, I mean, one of the mortal sins, if you're a Catholic, is, is to give up hope. Um, but as a good friend of mine, Terry Eagleton, wrote a book called Hope Without Optimism. So you don't have to be optimistic, but you have to have hope. All right. Now, the sort of this doesn't matter whether you're talking about forms of democracy or the green agenda or global warming. We need to make a difference there, and we're only going to make a difference if we have scalable methods which aren't dependent on individuals making a choice. It's, I mean, there was this big thing this week about um, the, the development goals, where there's a whole group of people trying to make it a matter of individual choice rather than systematic choice. And, and Nora Bates and I are planning a criticism on this. We, we're both deeply disturbed by it. Um, because what it is, if you sit there and say, well, everybody has to change individually before the world will change, nothing is ever going to happen. But you're going to have lots of meetings where you meet with like-minded people and decide how good you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my interest is in methods which will scale into populations of multiple, with multiple levels of intelligence, multiple backgrounds. The work we're doing on peace and reconciliation between far right and left yeah, again, that comes from work I did in the 70s in Northern Ireland on peace and reconciliation, where you don't want to mediate conversations, you want people to work together so they can have a conversation about their differences in the process of working together. Yeah. And if you want a good example of that, go to Star Trek and look at the Darmonk episode. Yeah. Um, and the early one reference with Kirk and on the planet, all right? So, so from my point of view, the motivation is, and, and, and the same is true with the whole Agile community, which is the framework walls are ridiculous. Everybody's trying to create a proprietary thing. Everybody wants to make money out of training. And the certification thing is just a scam. You know, it's just pay, pay money to me every year to read some slides I've sent out so that you can put some letters after your name. You know, I've got four sets of letters after my name, and I've all learned them all earned them all by exam over three or four years. I haven't earned them by... Project Shadow is sponsored by ProSci. Why are some projects more successful than others? Even the best solutions fall short when we fail to support the people who must use them in their daily work. Change is not an event. It's a journey. Change management is about helping people through their journeys and breaking down barriers so projects can achieve successful outcomes. As the globally recognized leader in change management solutions, ProSci has helped thousands of organizations improve project ROI and build change-ready cultures. Want to learn how change management works? Visit prosci.com forward slash project chatter to get your free change management for project managers resource kit. Attending a course and filling out a multi-choice questionnaire 
yeah, with an open book exam over the next four weeks, right? Mm. So software development is key for the future of the planet, for the future of society. We need to develop faster, more furiously. That means we need something which isn't just based on the manufacturing framework. We need to think ecologically. We need to think about scaffolding. We need to think about emergent you know, applications as emergent phenomena. All of that's actually critical for survival as a species. So those of us who can understand it need to make a contribution. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I don't think we asked you last time, so I was really keen to, to get that from you. And then just bring it back to Hexi. I was really intrigued by, you know, the, this idea that, you know, we, because simply because of the shape, we're not saying something's linear. And I love that. But then you, you said sort of this long, thin table, then I imagine linear again. Is it always going to be a long, thin table? Yeah, I mean, is it time is still a factor, right? So you're still yeah. going to do that. There are still things you have to do before you can do other things. And if you look at the way we've done that, we've built that with, um, so we got the hexes. Now we've also created a series of transparencies that yep. you can overlay on the hexes or use to connect hexes. And the nice thing about hexes, you can put two clusters of hexes as well. We could go down this route or that route, but we won't know until we get here. So again, we've created something like, you know, stop and think again. So at this point, you stop. So again, the idea is to just get people into, it's a sort of purposeful play type thing, yeah? And that people are putting things together and, you know, they've got a pack of methods like that. And they're going to start to sort through them and read through the back and think, oh, that will be interesting. Maybe I can put that in there. Right. And that, that's a very low risk of getting people to adopt new ideas and new tools. I love the fact that you've almost gamified it or you have. Yeah, it is. A, it is. Yeah. A game. yeah. And if you look at it, I mean, the Hexies also, I mean, one of my favourite games is Settlers of Catalan. And the fun about that game is part of the competition is to build the board on which you're going to play. And so we're doing the same thing. We've, we've taken inspiration from that in terms of the way we built it. So you're, you're bit, and that, you know, I talked about the constraint mapping and, and counterfactuals and constructors. Once you've done that, you've built the board and the space in which you can actually play. And then you start to put things into that. And, and that, that's, I mean, one of the reasons I think this whole anthro complexity approach is so important is it's deeply realistic and it's deeply materialistic. I mean, it's, it's actually in, in philosophy, this is known as new materialism, uh, which is the land of the femi a lot of feminism and elsewhere. It basically says, look, the world's real, it exists. We can't pretend it doesn't. Um, part of the problem you got with Agile and most of the sort of coaching methods is they're heavily socially constructivist. And again, that focuses on the individual and phenomenology. So we take a much more material, tangible approach on it. Yeah? And I think that's important because if you want to change the world, you've got to recognize the world as it is. Yes. We say to postmodernists, reality exists, live with it. Right. Um, and don't try and excuse yourself. Right. So I think that the physicality of moving things around, I mean, this comes also into the fact we know we're not just human consciousness and cognition is not limited to the brain. It's actually embodied, enacted, embedded and extended is the phrase. Right. So our body does a lot for us and physically moving things around actually stimulates cognition. Yeah. 
Um, we've got hexes there which represent, for example, SenseMaker instances with story patterns. Well, that's actually what Andy Clark calls extended consciousness. So one thing society does is we use common stories or patterns of stories as a form of scaffolding for consciousness, which is independent of our physical and mental bodies and so on. Yeah. So I say this, this sort of post-Cartesian concept of consciousness is really important. And once you understand that, you'd never just move into a sort of let's sit and talk about it. It also means, as I quite enjoy saying, if anybody believes in the singularity, if you've come across people who believe in the singularity, their brain is probably ossified to the point where for them it may work. Wow. Because actually consciousness is not, you are not a computer, it's not a mental thing. A huge amount of human consciousness is chemical. Mm. Yeah, and, and other factors that we don't fully understand in terms of social interactions. Epigenetics, we now know that culture inherits and we know the mechanism. Now just think about how scary that is. Mm. Yeah, it's an RNA change. And on that notion, and I know we're probably going way off topic here, but if it is, if it is just, you know, chemistry that's happening, can then, I think we, we described it last episode as machine learning, can machines start learning human no. behavior? No? Oh, no, they can learn. I think a couple of things. First of all, it isn't just chemical or mental. It's more complex than that. Yeah. Um, and actually, it's quite really interesting. From a complexity point of view, religion becomes easier than a non-complexity point of view because it's an emergent property. Yeah, so things can emerge from human interactions over time. But leave that one on one side for the moment, all right? So the, 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 I think the key thing is to recognize that the sort of patterns of the way we see the world are influenced by who and how and when we interact with other people and with other things. Now, that also means that in AI terms, the most significant factor is the training data sets. Now, I remember 25 years ago, I was on a conference platform with John Poindexter, who was a, you know, Reagan's NSA, who I was working with in DARPA. And somebody asked a question, we were both on a panel and said, what, what's the big opportunity with AI and the big threat? And this is 20 odd years ago. And we weren't sure who was asked the question and both of us answered simultaneously. We said the same thing everybody's forgotten about the training data sets. Uh, mm. And I remember doing submarine recognition and things like that. Yeah, yeah, you need expert knowledge and you need large sets. So it's like Google are trying to offer to do all sorts of things for free for the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry need to wake up on this because the minute Google have had their data for three or four years, they'll be able to replace yep. the pharmaceutical industry, right? And if you haven't read the paper Scholastic Parrots yet, that was the one which was written by a couple of ex-Google ex employees. They were Google employees when they wrote it, and they were ex-Google employees the minute they published it. Because it revealed the massive epistemic biases of black box AI within Google. So one of the things we originally developed SenseMaker for, for the example, is to produce balanced training data sets for AI. And I think that's really important to learn. And, and if you're going to train an AI algorithm and you want it to understand human decision-making and it will never replace it, you need high abstraction metadata because you can't just rely on meaning in, in tangible things, right? And human beings are really good at symbolic, symbolic representation and abstract representation. So that's one of the things we capture in SenseMaker. 
So we can actually produce better training data sets for algorithms. So my point of view is AI is augmentation, it's not replacement. It's oversold as a solution, and it also has major ethical issues, which people are just starting to address. Yeah, And also there's a danger in overdependency. And if you take any realistic scenario of the next 20 or 30 years, most societies are going to have fairly long periods without electricity. Oh. Right? So just think, oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about global warming, loss of power. Look what's happening in South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can't, you, you, the, the danger is we create a dependency on technologies which are not resilient enough. Whereas actually as a species, we're extremely resilient and we need to maintain those skills. Yeah. Just, just one more from me before we hand back to Val. You mentioned groupthink, but you know, for the past couple of years, everyone's been about diversity, diversity of thoughts mm. and, you know, having representation, etc. I just wonder, is there any evidence from your perspective to suggest that you know there yeah, is value what, what you've got is a sort of post-enlightenment white liberal northern european homogenization which is actually if everybody was like us the world would be a better place right i mean that's what it really says and you can see that in sharmiga's theory you and everything else it, it's basically a particularly cultural appropriation right um, we talk about coherent heterogeneity, right? So what you need is you need enough diversity that the system has resilience, but it has to be able to cohere when it's necessary, yeah? And I think that's the danger, and it's... So people try and stop people arguing with each other. Well, that's really stupid, because argument actually increases diversity of thinking. It stimulates people to think differently. This all views are equally valid. Well, kind of like it doesn't sustain examination anyway. Yeah. So I think recognizing homogen coherent homogeneity is a really important concept because it means we're different, but we can come together. So the way I illustrate it, for example, is um, I'm going down this Friday to watch, you know, probably the best rugby team in Wales, which is Cardiff, you know, um, play an Italian side as it happens. All right. And um, you know, Cardiff are a highly civilised club. We play by the rules. We have intelligent supporters. We don't cheat, right? Um, but the other weekend, those bastards from Clinically came up to play who can't be trusted. They're tin men and Turks, and they cheat, and they, they buy the referee, and, you know, can't stand the buggers, all right? Uh, but when England come to play Wales, we're all Welsh. And that's coherent heterogeneity. It means we're different, but in context, we can be the same. And I think that's what you desperately need. The reason we maximize for groupthink up front is to increase the tension of the differences. So, for example, one of the big things we do with management now, and this is the meaning wall stuff we developed for the EU, is you go onto the meaning wall and you meet a batch of stories which have some pattern to them. And they might come from your employees, for example. You then read those stories and then you interpret the stories and you immediately get shown the difference between your interpretation and their interpretation. And you're asked why. Now, we do an awful lot of that. You all did the same thing. This was different, why? Rather than us as a facilitation team talking about things. Right? And kind of like related on this, I might as well go into my current bet noir as well, which is the whole bloody mindset word which I would have banned, all right? 
I mean, it's not as bad as mental models, which is a completely farcical idea, but uh, mindset is equally bad because it places all the responsibility on the individual. We have this great agile program, but it didn't work. We didn't have the right mindset. It's your fault. Not maybe we got the bloody thing wrong, right? So we now talk about the three A's. We talk about agency, affordance, and assemblage. So agency is what has agency in the system. And often employees do not have agency. They just don't have it, right? Um, what are the affordances? So that's a biological term. What's, afford what's afforded to you by the environment? Yeah, if you're good at climbing trees and you're in the middle of a desert, well, hard luck, you can't exhibit those skills, right? An assemblage is this pattern of multiple narratives which forms a sort of an attractor one to which you fall. So it's the pattern of past history and expectations. So instead of talking about mindset, we talk about agency, affordance, assemblage. And that allows us to make changes which are sustainable. And it doesn't get us into this false attempt at pseudo-psychological coaching and taking techniques sideways from therapy, which is really dangerous because it assumes people need therapy and it privileges the therapist. Uh, you may just need to listen to them because they may know the solutions anyway. Yeah, great points. Um, you mentioned mindset and it's in projects, Dave, it's one of those catch catch alls, I guess, mm -hmm. for everything that goes wrong. If in doubt, and... blame the mindset. Exactly. It's uh, it's the one intangible that you can always go back to and point the finger and, and, and there's no real uh, accountability to that. But then on the on the counterverse of that, they will, they will talk about culture and they'll talk about entrepreneurial mindsets and that they say it, or at least it's phrased or framed in a positive way, but it doesn't link to anything uh, yeah. that's tangible. And it's also a context-free statement. It is. It, it, it assumes that an individual has a mindset which is context-free, which is actually completely untrue. Yeah, context switch, interactions switch, everything changes. Who, who you interact with matters more than what you are. Mm. And I love that point around increasing tensions of difference. And I do think as well, the emergence of an existential threat does unite people, even if it's a, you know, a, a sports team uh, or, or even COVID. We did see some of that, you know, some. Yeah, but some... COVID was proximate. So people responded. Um, mm. And this is actually a problem. Global warming, global warming isn't proximate. So people aren't responding. That's an interesting one as well. And I know it's not project related, but, but the difference between the two, that they still are threatening. Um, what do well, you when's what actually a bigger threat than COVID? Well, I remember you saying this in the last episode as well. And, and I guess, um, how could Kinevin and, and the rest of us make that well, more? We, more we got a project on that. I mean, I think what you're talking about is changing the dispositional state. So remember, a complex adaptive system has no causality. It has a dispositional state and it has propensities. So yeah, these things will be easier and these things are likely to repeat. That's dis disposition and propensity and the whole thing is modulated, right? Mm. So if you're gonna get politicians to make decisions over a 20 year lifespan, forget it. They're, they're not gonna take big sacrifices now because they won't get elected next time round. So then the affordances of the system prevent people doing the right thing. So you've got to change the affordance structure. So that's where we've been working on what's called the Little Aikens project, which is lots of small examples of the impact of climate change and people things, people did things about it. Once that reaches a certain critical mass, then there's a higher willingness to accept sacrifice at a nation state level. 
but you have to change the dispositional state so that people will enjoy it. It's the same in the States at the moment, the whole Roe v. Wade debate, yeah, is the assumption that you, you've got a Supreme Court judgment, which is a bit dubious anyway, and therefore you don't have to change the law, mm. and you don't have to change people's attitudes, means that things can catch up with you very badly, as they have in the States at the moment. And nobody's addressed how do you change the attitude so people, you know, so that 25 states don't want to pass legislation the minute they can, which everybody else is going to be appalled by. Right? So I think you know, this understanding that you have, you have to move from where people are to where they can go is critical at a nation state level, at a campaign level and at a company level. And everybody wants to decide how things should be and then get into these lovely cozy huddles with people who agree with them. Yeah, mm. rather than face the harsh reality of where people are and get them to take the next step. 100%. And that brings me to the next question around biases. So you mentioned as well, you know, setting up these frameworks and these methods are also used of good for training sets. And I've always been concerned around those elements of controls on machine learning, but also in the practicality of projects where we know there are biases. It's an inherent part of our, our condition. And how do you deal with that? Because you know, group think I love that idea of maximizing. That's the first time I've said you know it's almost the opposite to what everyone else is saying to do. Uh, there are you have that I think tendency that... to do that just for the fun of it. It generally works <laughs> We love to disrupt, and I think actually there's something. There's a, there's it might be a parody, but it's also useful to to look on the negative side. So what happens if we do? What happens if we don't? And I've used that as well. Um, uh, you know, what is the last thing to happen before you know this happens? And I think it's good to to bring biases to the forefront, but understanding biases, what's your view on that? And how do you um, well, navigate Gary that? Gary Klein and others, and I agree with them, say there's no such thing as a bias. There are just cognitive heuristics. So these things have evolved because overall, they allow us to make better decisions at lower energy costs as a whole. Mm -hmm. right? So yeah. if you look at any single bias, often it works out well. Yeah. So once you recognize that, it's, it's a counterfactual. So you build systems which don't depend on getting rid of biases. So for example, when we do situational assessment, yeah, we have two techniques for that. One is the constraint mapping. So that deflects people away from what we should do to what's going on. The other is we might present the situation to the entire workforce, get them to interpret it in five minutes and present the map of the different interpretations. Mm -hmm. So we show the biases in the visual representation, including the outliers. Now that's the naturalistic approach. Biases are a part of the way human beings have evolved. We're not going to get rid of them. So build yeah. systems on the assumption that you need to make them visible at a group level, but not at an individual level. So the, 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 well, once you once you take the natural science of this, things become simpler. Yeah, I agree. And uh, well, one of my questions was around that. It, is it always apparent that, that biases are conscious? Because there's a conversation around unconscious biases. And what's your view on that? Um, I wouldn't buy, I mean, that, that's a very Freudian, Jungian concept. I mean, you wouldn't see conscious, unconscious really being used that much these days. When you've got autonomic, novelty, receptive processing, you've got distributed decision-making, it's, it's far more complex, yeah? Mm. Uh, the reality is, most of the time, we're not really thinking hyper-rationally about decisions. We just can't afford the energy for that, right? And But mm. that's not an unconscious thing. It's, it's called an autonomic process. Yeah. So I, I, I think one of the worst things that happened to organizational change is carrying on where Jung, Freud and Jung left off. 
and you know that was a really nice idea in the in the eight twenty early late twentieth century because it made sense of things we didn't know about. But our understanding of the brain and the body and decision making is so far advanced beyond that that, I mean, Jungian Jungian archetypes and Jungian approaches are kind of like quaint, but they dominate organizational change practice. So organizational change practice is is working on the equivalent of young earth creationism. You're going to have to elaborate on that for me. Oh, we had a few people on. <laughs> okay, so change. you've got yeah. you've got this. I mean, you, you, it starts <laughs> with Freud, goes on with Jung. All right, the consciousness, yeah. unconscious, subconscious id. All right, and we're driven by all these. You know, it's a linear causal model if you look at it. All right, and it's an entirely mm -hmm. cognitive model. Now the reality is, when you pull your hand away from a hot plate. Yeah, the brain fires after you've done it. It's not because you haven't got free will. It's because the brain is double checking whether the automatic response was right this time in case it needs to modify it. Yeah. And some decisions are made simply because of the narrative structures in the society in which you grew up. That's not subconscious. Yeah. In, in the sense that it is meant by Freud and Jung. It's an autonomic response or it's a society level response or it's a it's it's too simplistic to say there's the inner and the outer yeah yeah i'll get there's that the conscious that... and the unconscious and it it lends into that all sorts of nonsense like the whole left right brain theory which is just farcical yeah and you see these things if you see a dog in this your left brain and if you see a cat in it your right brain i mean these are just nonsense right and it's this huge desire to put things into simple categories boxes yeah boxes and yeah, and then of course, if you've got subconscious desires, well, you need the therapist badly, and needing therapists badly is something the organizational change movement is largely set up to stimulate. Yeah, you, you bring a lot it's of like things. Like adult to the maturity surface. models, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, Nora Bates and I have both attacked these. Nora quite rightly says they're a modern form of eugenics. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. get get her on the if you want if you want somebody. Get, get Nora on the line, all right? Because she will go into that big time, all right? And remember, her father opposed eugenics when it came. I mean, the whole Keegan stuff, I mean, it's based on Piaget stuff, which is disproved experimentally years ago anyway. And it's this idea that people have to go through these linear stages and only the coach understands the stages and therefore they have the elite status. Now, the reality is I can take Keegan's stages, which have some utility, if I call them modulators and make them non-linear, they can be quite useful because in different contexts, different ones may dominate. But it's not the individual going through those stages. Mm. But coaches love adult maturity models. It's and it's the same that's... in organizations. I mean, all this nonsense about what level of maturity we reached in project management. Well, for Christ's sake, which projects with which people in which context? Yeah, the, the organization is the wrong level of analysis for that sort of thing. Yeah, well, I, I, only recently I just saw one with, with practice. They rolled out their their little simplified versions of, of maturity models. But I think we do have this this stigma in and actually stagnation in some of these projects where we are using these old outdated models. And we've clearly advanced to a point where there are better ways of doing things and better mm -hmm. ways of working with different people of different points. And I agree with the, one of the reasons we started this podcast, Dave, was because we didn't know what we didn't know. And we knew yeah. we went right in a lot of the situations and having people like yourself in challenging oh. thoughts. M many years ago, I created a three by three matrix, which went known, unknown, unknowable. All right. And I presented mm -hmm. it 
in the Pentagon once, and then I couldn't use it again for about five years. Um, and what was interesting is Rumsfeld forgot about the unknowable element. Mm. Right? And the point is there are unknowable unknowables. Right? And, and that's yeah. where actually complexity and other things come into play. So we've evolved to handle that level of uncertainty. It's what, you know, we evolved to make decisions abductively, not inductively. But all of the management methods are based on inductive reasoning, not abductive reasoning. So is it a surprise they don't work when things change? 100%. Um, I, can't, I can't agree with you more. I think a lot of the times the rigidity of projects don't allow projects to be successful in the first place. And because it's set at the start, once it sets in motion, these things tend to yeah. be like a ball rolling downhill. One of the things we're interested uh, in doing, and we're, we're pretty close now to defining a multi-member project on this, is to start to think about projects in terms of coherent components with standard input outputs. So basically, you have polymorphism, inheritance, and input output, and that's the way you reduce risk on projects. See, this is where I got excited about project management when I first got into it, Dave, because something about PMI made sense. They, that's exactly how they processed their information. You had inputs, processes, and outputs. It was more... Yeah, but they, then, then they developed PBOC and it all went wrong. Then it went wrong, yeah, unfortunately. So I had one more question. And then they took the shallow way and it went even worse. But... <laughs> and now they're all the same. There's a bit of a whitewash in terms of certifications and methodologies, which we talked about. Yeah, Dave, I mean, it's... Yeah, I was just going to say they are quite interesting because they've made the classic mistakes. So they saw safe taking their market. So they tried to out safe safe. Well, you never beat an apex predator by trying to do what they already do better than you. You have to find something you do which they can't do and differentiate <laughs> on that. And PMI made that fundamental mistake. They tried to imitate safe. And at that point, they're dead. Mm. They could if they brought in the Hexi method and maybe they had some facilitation. Well, we'll, we'll have some chats with them. Yeah, they, 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 yeah. They've gained more depth since they lost shallows. So yeah. Yeah. I can't resist that one. So we'll see. But uh, <laughs> we'll see what comes out of it. All right. But I, I think one of the things I'm really interested in at the moment is we are going to announce probably in about three or four months a membership based consortium to develop a complexity based approach to project management. So an assembly, and I just need more time to get that together. Because we, we, we need, and it comes back to where we started this. Um, Agile got off on the wrong foot because Scrum had the highest level of codification and abstraction, so it, it diffused fast. And Scrum was based on proprietary methods with certification, so everybody copied that. Mm. Right? DSDM, which actually was one of the inputs, which I was one of the three founders of, except we did it over a meal in a pub in Cheltenham rather than a ski resort over a week, right? But we're British. Um, was actually done between three competitors. Mm. And to me, that was really important because I put our money into it as a company, right? Is what we're trying to do now is we need to do things collaboratively between competitors to advance the field, not try and get proprietary ownership of the new developments in the field. The time where you go proprietary is when you're differentiating yourself in a mature market. In an emergent market, you need to work with competitors. I completely agree. We, we actually, something similar to that um, in Australia where we we make by team in terms of how we understand the market. And I don't know who taught me this, Dale. I think it came from, from Talos, maybe Defence, something like that, where you can make people, uh, you bring them up, develop them, coach them, train them, indoctrinate them to a sense, or you can buy people from the street, you know, 
people who have the the technical capabilities or you can team and because of the emergent nonsense of trying to build all the infrastructure projects at the same time dave in australia it's a great plan yeah. by the way uh we have this emergent and novel uh indifference around how projects should be delivered and we don't have the capacity or the capability so we have to team with competitors and it's actually been really fruitful because we have different ways of thinking about the same problem and there's something to be said about that you know uh, same storms different boats as tim mm. greasy says uh, but i look forward to you coming down and i just wanted to, one more question for me before i pass mm. on i mean i think you've, you've covered so much and we've gone so many different rabbit holes it's great we even got some digs in there and, and reference some some footy teams um but uh, you know how do we get you to the masses how do we get this methodology to the masses again it's it could start, it's yeah. starting all right i mean these, these things come all right so yeah systems thinking i remember when i was first involved in that in the early days of cybernetics and the, the pod at lse and stuff like that you probably knew everybody involved in the field and then it went mass right so that's what happens. Yeah, there's a, there's a movement and a change. The citizen engagement stuff we're working on in Australia is is a big part of that, and we've already run we've run complexity based interventions with illiterate people in Africa, and refugees in Malmo, and we've got some deployments in the Ukraine at the moment. So once you've got the tools and the methods developed, then you can scale and you can go the broad populations. But you you have to wait until mm. you got the theory and the practice right, and that's where we are now. And I need to write the book, and that means I need time to do it. Excellent. We could all do with a little bit more time, but we mm -hmm. have almost come to the end of this podcast, Dave. And if you recall last time, we took you through Fiverr, which are basically five context-free questions, which you can choose to answer in whichever way you, you want. <laughs> we have switched them up a little bit. So, um, okay, you... I can't remember them from last time, so you're quite safe. <laughs> Fantastic. So if you're ready, we'll go for it. Just five yeah. quick fire ones. Question one, steak, seafood, or salad? Mm, it's a context-free question in context-specific world, but I'm walking 70 miles and... 3,000 feet on Friday, so I need a steak after that. Fantastic. Question two, what are the three must-have behaviors you look for in successful project teams? Um, first of all, not talking about desired behaviors in project teams. <laughs> all right. Secondly, talking about how you interact and put things to get differently. And thirdly, how do you modularize the deliverables? Love it. Question three, what is one piece of advice for people new to the project profession? um get your hands dirty make mistakes question four if you could go back to one moment of your life what would it be and why uh, i think there's probably several moments and some i'm definitely not going to tell you about all right um <laughs> no actually i mean to be quite honest i think it's it's not the way of looking at it i mean i've, I've done i've always bumbled through doing things which interested me and staggered through and hindsight is a wonderful thing but it doesn't lead to foresight so i think i think if you, if you want the one thing is just learn to accept the flow of things and deal with where you are nice and question five which superpower would you choose to have for a day and why hmm? oh superpower this is like the three wishes where you always get it wrong, right? I, I think if, if I had a superpower to remove all nuclear weapons from the world overnight so that they weren't around, I'd do that. Yes. Right? Thank because 
you know, I'm, I'm seriously worried. I mean, I never thought I'd have to worry about that again, but I'm seriously worried about it now. Yeah. So mm. I think superpowers have become a little bit too dangerous to talk about. Fair enough. Fair enough. Dave Snowden, look, thank you so much once again. Um, again, my brain is fried. I'm going to have to go back, rewind, re-listen. But before we let you go, are there any final thoughts that you want to Just remember, this is the new simplicity. <laughs> it has how everybody manages their day-to-day lives. They just forget about it when they go to work. Mm. Fantastic. And it's known as the new simplicity. It's also known as the science of common sense. Which, as we always say, is it not is that common. common. Yeah, no, we all know. <laughs> <laughs> Val, any final thoughts from you? No, it's great to have you back again. Thanks for explaining the Hexi and going through lots of that. I was most of that time I was hopefully silent, silently listening. I love that idea, and I look forward to catching up with you in Australia at some point. Yeah, it'd be good. Brilliant. Thank you so much once again, folks. As you've heard, that is all the time we have on this episode. But remember, if you like what you've heard, please do help and pay it forward by sharing a link to this episode on your favorite social media. A massive thank you once again to our guest, Dave Snowden. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me and Val, it's bye for now. Thanks. Project Shadow supports and is a member of Zero Construct. Zero Construct is a new working group that wants to lower carbon construction. Not everyone will be aware, but construction contributes to around 12 to 15% of total carbon emissions. This is a staggering amount and we need to reduce it. We are a growing community of people that want to help make this change. Everyone is welcome, whether you're an engineer, contractor or consultant, you just need to want to make a difference. Our aim is to grow a network of experts so we can all learn from each other and make a positive impact in the places where we work. We'll do this by sharing knowledge and making it accessible in engaging ways. To join us and find out more, please visit zeroconstruct.com and register as a member. Thank you, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. For more information, blogs, or to support our charities, visit projectchatterpodcast.com. And if you would like to sponsor the podcast, get in touch via our website. You can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.